All right. With that said, we are going to look this morning at Nehemiah. We've kind of continued to work our way through this book. Uh, and this, uh, we're looking today at Nehemiah 9, which even for Nehemiah is really long. And so, <clears throat> although it's very difficult for me, uh, we will not read the whole thing. Uh, and so, uh, let me just kind of tell you what's happening. You may recall last week, if you were here, Nehemiah 8, um, they finally began to read the scripture, right? They had the scripture read. They asked to have the scripture read. We talked about the importance of, of reading the Bible. And Liz, uh, Liz Todd kind of alluded to it in prayer. If you really want scripture, to, if you want to see it flourish in your life, you have to actually read it. You have to practice it. These are the things we talked about last week. Uh, but also, of course, what happens is when you begin to read scripture, you begin to see, oh, okay, well, this is what scripture says. And, oh, my goodness, this is how we've been living. Uh, and so there's a sense of conviction that can come at times when we read scripture. Uh, and so in this chapter... Uh, um, the people are looking more at confession. So they have gathered together. Everyone has gathered together. Uh, and they're fasting. They have on sackcloth and, 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 and the, the, the dirt of the earth, it says. And they are going to confess. Uh, and so Ezra, who is the priest who read the scripture, as we talked about last week, he is leading the congregation, uh, or that group, in prayer. And so that's where we are this morning as we dive in. We'll dive in actually at 9 uh, verse 6, and then uh, we'll read just about half of the chapter in all. Here we go. And Ezra said, you are the Lord. You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. To all of them you give life, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. And you have found his heart faithful before you and made him with him a covenant to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous." And you saw the distress of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted insolently against our ancestors. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they passed through the sea on dry land. But you threw their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way in which they should go. You came down also upon Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known your holy Sabbath to them and gave them commandments and statutes and a law through your servant Moses. For their hunger you gave them bread from heaven and for their thirst you brought water for them out of the rock. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you swore to give them. But... They and our ancestors acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and determined to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are God, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them even when they had cast an image of a calf for themselves and said... This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed, committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud that led them in the way did not leave them by day nor 
the pillar of fire by night that gave them light on the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so they took possession of the land of King Sihon of Heshbon and the land of King Og of Bashan. You multiplied their descendants like the stars of heaven and brought them into the land that you had told their ancestors to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they pleased. And they captured fortress cities and a rich land and took possession of houses filled with all sorts of goods, hewn cisterns, vineyards, and olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. And then to skip down to verse 33. You have been just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we come to you on this cold, frosty morning, and we give you praise for a place of warmth. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would come and speak to us yet one more time through this book of Nehemiah that you have given to us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, sisters and brothers, revealing yet one more time, as he has done several times, Nehemiah would have made a great preacher because he says in 10 minutes what he could have said in less than 10 seconds. This is just what Nehemiah does, right? It's been pointed out that you could really, you could, if you wanted to, you could, you could shorten all of this into that 33rd verse that I read. You, God, have been just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Right? That's what this whole passage is about. God's faithfulness and our faithlessness. Mark Roberts kind of gives a brief overview. And since we didn't read the whole thing, let me just kind of show you what he says. First of all, here we go. God's greatness in creation, covenant, and redemption. And then the people's hardening of their necks. Then God's grace, followed by the people's idolatry. God's mercies, followed by the people's disobedience. God's discipline and salvation, followed by the people's evil. God's deliverance, the people's stiff necks. 
God's patience, judgment, and mercy. And on and on it goes. It is a bit like watching a tennis match, if you will, where you hear, there's God's faithfulness. Oh, we messed up again. There's God's faithfulness. Oh, we did it again. Back and forth and back and forth. This is a prayer of confession that reveals in dramatic ways the difference between God and God's people. Now, as a brief aside, one of the interesting things about this passage, it seems to me, is that for the second week in a row, it is a reminder to us of how the Israelites, the people of Judah, were oftentimes, um, uh, their, their, their physical, what they were doing physically, aligned with what they were doing spiritually. Uh, remember last week, uh, the festival of booths or tabernacles or, or, or sukkot, as they called it, where they would build these tents, right, and then live in them because it reminded them of when they were wandering in the wilderness and God's deliverance, right? They, they physically were acting out, right? And, and they do that here as well. I mentioned it uh, before I read the scripture that they fast. Right, which is a physical thing. They they had ashes or or, or dirt that was placed on their heads. They wore sackcloth, and I'm I'm intrigued. This is I have no answers for this. I just want you to know I'm just intrigued by how they physically, for a time at least, how what they were thinking physically and spiritually, how those things aligned. And I wonder. If we as Presbyterians sometimes don't focus far too much just on our mouth and the ways in which we worship, and if perhaps there shouldn't be times when what we are doing physically should align with what we are thinking and how we are worshiping. I don't want to think about it too much because as a Presbyterian, it makes me feel uncomfortable to think about how we might do that. But I just just wonder about that. Just put that, just, just think about it. Now, another thing that I find to be somewhat interesting in this passage that we didn't get to read because it comes very early, it's in verse 2, is that the confession was not actually just a confession for those who were speaking it, for the present, right? Literally what it says is they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. In other words, what they seem to understand is that there's a decent shot that the sins of those who have come before them has probably shaped them in a unique way that they need to be mindful of. Whenever I do premarital counseling, uh, um, towards the end, I always ask the young couple, it's not always young, I suppose, even older couple, uh, uh, um, two things. One is, what do you want to bring in from your family of origin into your relationship, into your marriage? What's something really good? But then I also ask them, what's something from your family of origin, from the families in which you were raised, that you would prefer not to see in your marriage? Right? And sometimes people are, are a little bit uncomfortable with that. But I think it's an important Question, because here you may or may not know this, of course, is that if you're not mindful of the brokenness or some of the dysfunction, even sin, that your parents, that you saw in your parents or whatnot, as a parent, this gets very uncomfortable. What you know, right, is if you don't name that in some way, that there's a great chance that that's just going to simply kind of keep going on, right? And as difficult as it is for me to think about, there will become a time when Shaughnessy, Adley, Winnie, and Liesel, right, when maybe they will answer that question because you know what, Megan and I, this we aren't perfect. I know, right? What a surprise. 
There is sin and brokenness that we have that right now even we are passing on to our children. And I want them to be mindful of that, right? Just as they were mindful of that so that you can name it and say, you know what, this is not something. This is not good. And we can even ask, we're not responsible for that per se, but we are called to think it through so that as we continue on, we hope to not continue that same kind of sin or brokenness. Now, one of the other interesting things about this prayer of confession, which is really what it is, is that it spends a fair amount of time talking not about their own sin or brokenness. It certainly mentions that, but as, you, as I read the passage, maybe you heard, it spent more time talking about the faithfulness of God. So in this prayer of confession, rather than just sitting there and listing off every place they failed, they mentioned it, but rather than focusing on that, interestingly enough, they focused on the faithfulness of God. Sometimes when we think about our own sin or brokenness, we think the only thing that we need to do is just kind of talk about that. But perhaps the greatest antidote to that is to begin to focus less all the time on what we've done wrong and more on who God is and what God has done, what God has given to us. And if we do that, we may be surprised by how much less we are affected by our own sin and brokenness if we keep going back and focusing on God. The Old Testament, you know this, the Old Testament talks repeatedly about remembering. Remember, remember, remember God, remember God, remember what God has done, remember God's generosity, remember God's gifts, all again and again and again. And why is that the case? Because we don't remember. Walter Brueggemann has this great line where he says that prosperity breeds amnesia. Prosperity breeds amnesia. The reality is, as we saw here with these folks, with the history of their people, and as we experience in our own lives, when we are in a difficult time, then we, you know, then we pray, then we do these things, then we, oh, we feel our sense of God. But when things are going well, we oftentimes forget. One commentator for this particular chapter said this, they lacked nothing and they appreciated nothing. They lacked nothing and they appreciated nothing. The truth is, when we forget, then we appreciate little. When we forget who it is that has given us what we have, grace, forgiveness, love, everything that we own, all those things, when we forget that, then we become less thankful and grateful. And when we are less thankful and grateful, we become less joyful and less generous. There is a direct correlation, as we will see, between being grateful and being generous, between being grateful and being joyful. And as soon as you forget that, then sin and brokenness are sure to follow. Make no mistake about it. Prosperity breeds amnesia. Before I came here to uh, Zionsville Presbyterian Church, um, I, uh, as oftentimes happens, you know, you talk to other pastors about, oh, I'm going to this church. And, 
And there were a couple things that, that, that some pastors said to me, some things I had, had seen when they were pastoring, and that was if you're going into a congregation with the people who have, you know, um, um, you know, where there's a decent amount of folks who are successful or somewhat wealthy, you know, here are some things for you to look out for. Uh, one of the things they said is you have to realize that those people, lot, many of them are used to always being the smartest person in the room. Right? When they go into a room, you know, I mean, they're just the smartest person in the room, which can be fine in your own business. But then if you get 10 of those smartest people in the room in one place, and you're trying to get them on board to go in one direction, right? I mentioned this a few weeks ago. It can be interesting. You notice just kind of the nervous laughter there. Another thing that they warned me of, as they said again, in thinking about prosperity breeding amnesia, is the fact that sometimes when you are in a group of folks, when you're in a church with people who, who, who have been successful, if you will, that yes, they can forget who it was and why it was. This isn't because they are so wonderful in and of themselves as if they have created themselves. They can forget that it's all from God, that it's all what God has given to them. And when that happens then, then they can become less grateful, less thankful, which means they can become less joyful and less generous. And that that can be a struggle in churches full of folks who are oftentimes successful or affluent in some way. Now, I want to say this after having been here now for almost six years. I think I've mentioned this to you once before. I have found, by and large, here at ZPC, that not to be the case. I have found, by and large, for this to be a congregation full of people who are grateful, who know that this has been a gift from God, who are generous, and who are joyful. And that is a real blessing. I kind of have a theory, one of my running theories about that. Well, one of them is that, you know, we are people of the word, and so we know these things. But another more sociological, if you will, or anthropological feeling is because many of us here who perhaps may be in that position now did not grow up like that. Right, you grew up like maybe in, on farms or grew up in small towns or things like that. And so you understand what it's like, right? You understand. You know that this is a gift. You know this isn't the way it always is. You, you understand that. You remember that what you have is not just something that is obligated to you. You remember that, right? I, I, I can remember this as well, even and I, and I you know, I've talked about post-divorce in my own family and how I felt that economic shift in vulnerability, right? The, the image of going from Pizza Hut every Friday night to, to Chef Boyardee at the house. Or it wasn't, was it Chef Boyardee? Who was? Yeah, I think it was. The homemade pizza, right? And you may be like, well, that's not a big deal. It had less to do with the fact that the pizza wasn't as good, which it was not. And more to do with the fact that I could just feel that I wasn't as safe, right? And then my mother, who, who, who did a newspaper route at that at that juncture. So she was waking up at literally three in the morning. Uh, and so she would wake up, she would go deliver newspapers. She would come home. She would see off, us off to school. She'd go to graduate school where she was uh, becoming a counselor. As soon as she got done, she would then go to her second job, which was at a Christian bookstore. Then when she was done with that, she'd come home, we'd make dinner. And as soon as she was done with that, then she'd start doing homework to about 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Then she'd go to bed and then it would start all over again, right? This is what I remember as a child, 11 to like 18 or so. I mean, she finished school before then, but thankfully, but, but I can remember that sense, right? So I remember that. 
because it's kind of seared here. Now, here's the thing. I think many of us remember that. So hopefully, prosperity is not breeding amnesia for many of us. The problem is our kids and our covenant children. See, I'm nervous for my own kids because mom and dad aren't working two or three jobs. I'm not getting up at 11. I mean, I wake up at 3, of course, turn back over and go back to sleep. But they're not experiencing that. And I know that I'm not the only one because I've talked to you all. I've talked to parents, some who are in their 70s and 80s now, who are concerned about what's become of their children and wonder, well, wait, they don't seem to acknowledge God that much. They don't, and, they, and they certainly don't seem to realize that what they have is not something that was obligated to them. I, I, I notice it when I talk to parents in their 30s or 40s. I mean, I, I, I literally, I'm not lying here, I have these conversations. How do we help to raise our children in such a way that they realize that this is not obligated to them? Because when that happens, when you think, well, no, this is just what I deserve, it completely changes how you understand everything. And so I've been concerned. If they lack nothing, will they appreciate nothing? Does prosperity, will it breed amnesia for them? Will they forget God? Will we forget God? So how do we deal with that, right? Do we just start working two or three jobs even if we don't need to? I mean, I suppose you could, but I think that perhaps a better way is for us to try to understand what it means to live with more intentionality. And so I want to say that the first step, it seems to me, is exactly what we see the people doing here in Nehemiah, which is that they pray. They begin to Pray. I want us to not underestimate the power of prayer, not to get what we want, but the power of prayer when you are still, as Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. You see, what we have to do in the midst of our busyness, because a busy people will always eventually begin to forget who God is because they will begin to believe that they are actually in control and not God is that we have to stop. Maybe you've done this before where you've been in a hurry right before we had uh, some inquirers over on Friday night. It was wonderful. But of course, you know what happens right before people come over, right? You're like, you're running around, you're doing this, you're wiping this. You're like, oh, what time is it? This is crazy, right? And you're doing all these things, right? And then sometimes you'll go into a room and you can't remember why you had gone into that room because things were so hectic, right? And so you go and what do you oftentimes do? And you're running around and you're trying to think that, what do you do? You, you simply, you stop. Wait. Why am I in here? And you stop as a way of remembering. And so one of the important things about prayer is that it is simply this act. Sometimes we make it complicated. It is this act of simply stopping and remembering who God is. See, this is the thing about prayer that I think we don't always understand. When we think of prayer, 99 times out of 100, we think of intercessory prayer. We think about praying for someone, praying for ourselves. It is a request from God. Almost always when we think about prayer, that's what we think about. But, but that's not, while that is true, to be sure, by all means, 
prayer is a part of asking for something. Prayer, especially when it comes to trying to remember God and what God has done for us, prayer begins by focusing less on ourselves and more on God. In fact, Philip Yancey says the first step of prayer is remembering or acknowledging. Eugene Peterson, when he thinks about prayer, he said it is the practice of shifting preoccupation away from yourself toward attentiveness and responsiveness to God. A prayer does not begin first and foremost with saying, what can I get? What can you give to me? No matter how right or noble it may be, but instead is actually the beginning process of reflecting and seeing and remembering who God is and what God has done for us. And the more that you mature in your faith and in your prayer walk, the more that you will begin to see this reality. I, I think it's a little bit like having kids. I got four little kids, 10, 8, 6, and 4. And do you know what little kids do? They ask a lot. They ask repeatedly. What can I do this? Can I go ride my bike? Can we watch television? Can we see this movie? Can we get some screen time? When are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? Can I eat this? If I hear my child one more time say, can I have some more candy? I am going to lose my mind. This is what kids do. But now once every blue moon, maybe, I don't know, every three months, one of my children will say to me, Daddy, yes, how was your day? I mean, it genuinely stops me in my tracks, right? And I'm usually, I'm like, and I will almost always ask them to repeat it for two reasons. One, to make sure I actually heard them. And two, because it feels so amazing <laughs> to have your child, your young child, look at you and just say, how, how was your day today, Daddy? Now, they're kids, so I don't have these expectations that they should be doing that all the time. I do have an expectation that as they mature and grow older, that the ratio of when they're asking for things for themselves versus asking about others will hopefully get at least a little bit more in balance. But I wonder if there isn't some kind of analogy between that and us and God that we're always sitting there and asking for things and asking for things in our immaturity at times. Again, you should ask for things, but, but how often are we just simply focused on God and on what God has given to us and being thankful rather than just continually like a six-year-old saying, what else, God, can you do for me? And how might that, if we remember God in that way, Help us to begin to flourish and to be grateful and to be joyful and to be a people who are generous rather than a people who tend to become more self-centered or greedy or wondering what's in it for me, which is always a part of sin and brokenness. Now, it may be a wee bit difficult for us to just kind of start like that. If you're used to just prayer being, how can I just kind of ask God for a few 
things. So let me, let me, let me give you what, what might be a nice little half step in this direction. I started thinking about it when I was looking at verse 25, Nehemiah 9, 25, um, where it talks about all that the Lord has provided. The Lord has given them all this land. They have these orchards. I mean, they have everything. Their, their houses are full. I mean, they are living the dream. And I tried to accentuate it, and I'm going to say it again. Here's what verse 25 says. It says this, So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in God's great goodness. Now here's the thing. That's all good. You may be thinking, oh, this is, uh, 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 they're criticizing themselves for this. No, 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 no. This is a brief moment when they were hitting it on target that they ate, they were filled, they became fat, but they delighted themselves in God's great goodness. They knew, they knew that they had been blessed and they were thankful to God for it. That is a beautiful tension that most of us struggle with. We either forget, as I've said, or we downplay all the things that God has given to us as if it's not that big of a deal. And when you do that, then you are not remembering and being fully thankful for all that God has given to you. God longs for us to eat, to be filled, to become fat. I'm going to say that one more time. To become fat and to delight ourselves in God's great goodness. I think we struggle with that. Let me give you just one way I think we struggle with this. One example. You may not even believe me or agree with me, and I'm okay with that. Um, it makes it more exciting when you don't. So one of the things I've noticed, we talked about this about fall break, spring break, you know, that it's not long before you get here, before you realize the question is not, are you going to do anything, but where are you going? We, we've talked about that. One of the things I've been noticing over the last two or three years, it's probably always been there, I just didn't notice it, is what oftentimes happens after you say, where are you going? And people tell you where they're going, and then almost without fail, as good Hoosiers, we then completely downplay what we're doing. As an example. Well, you know, oh, well, you know what? We are, uh, we're going to the islands of Fiji for a week. But I found an amazing deal on the internet. It's basically costing me $20. Okay, great. What are you doing? Oh, well, you know, we are actually going to Bermuda for a week and then catching a rocket up to the moon for two days and then back down. But you know my husband, you know my wife, she travels all the time. It's all frequent flyer miles for a cup of coffee. We go to the moon. Or, well, you know what, we're going to go, we have, a, we, have a, we, have a, we have a lake house, uh, or we have a house on the, on the beach, but I <laughs> inherited it. Our parents had it. Or, you know what, it's really little more than a shack and an outhouse, really. I mean, I, don't, I would even call it a house. It's really, I mean, pay attention, it is awesome. 
And for a while I thought, well, this is just because I'm a pastor, right? And people feel guilty about that and they're afraid if they say something that I'm going to be like, hey, when might you give to the church, right? And, and so maybe that. But, but the thing is, I have begun to notice actually that people do that with talking to others too. I mean, just literally right before fall break, I was picking up my daughter at preschool and, and two parents who I don't even know, and I heard them talking, and yep, sure enough, the same thing, right? I, oh, we're going to do this amazing thing. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. We got a great deal. Don't worry about it, you know. It's fascinating. But just listen to yourselves. And so I, I don't know why. People do it for lots of different reasons. They want to uh, uh, seem humble. It doesn't seem to bother them when they're putting up all these things on Instagram or Facebook. But whatever. That's bygones. Or, 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 or they just feel bad. Whatever it is, I don't really care about that. But here's what I do care about. They are doing something amazing. They are doing something remarkable. Having a beach house someplace, having a lake house someplace, going to the moon for Pete's sake. I mean, these are incredible things. This is a gift. It's not because you got frequent flyer miles or you work so much harder than anybody else or you are just had this wonderful deal. No, no, no. It's because God has given you that. And when you downplay that gift, you are downplaying what God has provided to you. And here's what I want to say, because I know some of you are judging me right now, because I feel it, and you're saying, well, you know what, we shouldn't just be thankful for that. We should be giving it to others. And you're exactly right. But here's what I want you to know. The people who are eating and become fat and delight themselves in God's great goodness, the people who know that the reason why they have that is all because of a gift are the people who are the most generous. And the people who are making all kinds of excuses about why what they're doing is not that big of a deal are the people more often than not who are not focusing enough on what God has given to them and who are some of the least generous of people. And so a part then of what we can continue to do and to grow in is to do this, is to be thankful for what God has given to us. Don't downplay it. It could be true, all those things, and that's fine. But live into the gift, live into the fat of that. But be thankful to God and delight in what he has done. Because if you will do that, I promise you this, it will lead to gratefulness. It will lead to joy. It will lead to generosity. It will lead to others being a part of what you are doing. The people who know it's a gift are the same people who are inviting you into that lake house. The people who think, well, it's just something I have, are the people who are keeping it to themselves. The people who know the trips that they go on are a gift from God are the same people, it seems to me, who are also then giving towards those who are in need. And they are the people who are full of joy, and that will always attract people. The people who know that they have been forgiven by God and are so thankful are the same people who then are going to be forgiving to others. The same people who know that they have been unfaithful even when God is faithful are the people who will continue to be faithful to those around them even when they are unfaithful faithful because they know the joy of what God has given to them. Eat, be filled, grow fat, and delight in God's great goodness. So here's what I want us to do this week. I want us to remember 
Maybe you're going through a great time right now. And you're realizing that that prosperity is leading to amnesia. Maybe you're going through a difficult time and all you can see is the ways that nothing is working out for you. What I want you to do this week is I want you to spend time remembering God's grace, God's faithfulness, God's generosity. And so here's what we're going to do. If you are on the little Advent text devotional things that we do, you remember those? If you're on that, then you're going to be getting a text this week. Every day, you're going to get a text. And it's going to come at different times of day. Three in the morning. I'm just kidding. Uh, But it will come at different times. And it's going to say this mostly. It's It's going to use this word, remember. Remember. And I want you to take five minutes during that time. Now, I realize maybe you're in an important business meeting or whatnot. Well, you shouldn't be looking at your phone anyways then. But at some point, when you sit down and you see that text, I want you to take five minutes. Is that that too long? No. Five minutes, and I want you to either reflect on or to write down, or even better, perhaps, to tell somebody, perhaps especially a child, your own or a covenant child or whomever. And I want you to say, here is what the Lord has done for me. Here is where God has been faithful to me. I want you to do that. And then next week, especially at home groups, we are going to be asking, how did that change you? Did it shape you in any way to simply take 35 minutes during a week and to reflect on God's great goodness? It is a prayer of confession that focuses on the faithfulness of God. So may we eat, may we grow fat, may we delight in God's goodness that others then may experience just how faithful God is to us. May it be so. Amen.